Brothers and sisters, good evening. It's a real pleasure for me to be here. First of all, to be here, I'm grateful to uh, Sister Timothy and the sisters inviting me back to preach another retreat. I'll be preaching this retreat this weekend. During the week, I'll be staying here, making a silent retreat for myself. In our community, we all have to make a week-long, uh, we call it solitude retreat. And, um, and then finally, I'll be giving another retreat next weekend for men. Uh, so uh, keep, if you would keep that all in your prayers. Uh, so it's a pleasure for me to be here, and I am grateful to the sisters to invite me to come. But it's a pleasure to meet all of you, and uh, I hope that, you know, that this retreat, which will be on St. Teresa, this is her year, this is her 500th anniversary of her birth. So uh, we have to honor her. She is a remarkable woman in the life of the church and uh, someone whose great wisdom can help us all grow closer to God. Uh, you know, we have Our Lady here on the side here, on this side, that's Our Lady of Mount Carmel, beautiful title. You know, when the Blessed Mother appeared at Fatima in October, the October apparition where they had the great miracle of the sun, she appeared to the children three times. She appeared with St. Joseph, the only other saint to be seen at Fatima. He was holding Christ child and they were blessing the world and Our Lady appeared with them as Our Lady of the Joyful Mysteries. She appeared also a second time as Our Lady of the Sorrowful Mysteries. She was with Jesus, her son, but he was a young man. He was not, it was not uh, Jesus in sorrow. He wasn't crowned or scourged or anything. It kind of forced foreshadowed the mysteries we call the luminous mysteries of the rosary. Jesus as a young man, his public life. But the third time she came, she appeared during that apparition, she appeared as Our Lady of Mount Carmel to represent Our Lady of the Glorious Mystery. So the sorrowful, the joyful, the sorrowful, the luminous, and the glorious mysteries. And when she revealed her name to the children in that October apparition, she said, I am the Lady of the Rosary. The only request she made in all six of her apparitions at Fatima, she said to the children, tell the people to pray the Rosary every day. So that's a very important thing. I encourage you, if you're not doing that, please to do that because the, the Rosary is a powerful, powerful prayer. Okay, you remember the Blessed Mother told the children, she said, the Rosary is powerful enough to stop wars. The rosary is powerful enough to bring peace. And she said the rosary is powerful enough to convert sinners. And I don't know if you heard the story about that bishop from, the, from Nigeria, one of the areas where that Boko Haram was doing a lot of harm. And uh, he was making a, uh, he was praying before the Blessed Sacrament and Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus was holding a sword and he reached out and gave the sword to the bishop. And as soon as the bishop took it into his hands, he said it turned into a rosary. And Jesus said to him, that's your weapon against Boko Haram, the, the rosary. And that's the weapon for peace in the world. To combat evil, Our Lady requested that. That was Our Lady of Mount Carmel. And you know, up there, that's St. Teresa of Avila. That's St. Teresa. That's the one we're going to be talking about, okay, going through her life 
and her wonderful teaching on prayer called the Interior Castle. On the other side, you have St. John of the Cross, a great mystic who uh, also worked with St. Teresa in the beginning to reform. You know, he helped her with her reform of the Carmelite nuns, and then later on, she encouraged him to begin a reform of the Carmelite uh, priests and friars. So we are surrounded with great saints. We've got St. Joseph over there, for whom St. Teresa had a very great love. Okay, um, at one point she had a statue of St. Joseph. She said she never prayed to St. Joseph without getting an answer to her prayers. And she had this statue of St. Joseph, and you know, it was unusual because whenever she was away and she would come back to the convent, she was the superior, this statue would talk to her and tell her all the things the nuns were doing while she was away. <laughs> So the nuns, the nuns <laughs> entitled the statue St. Joseph the Gossiper. So <laughs> I said, that's the dream statue of every religious superior. You know? <laughs> know what's going on when I'm not home. <laughs> but I'd like to talk about St. Teresa. This, as I mentioned to you, 500th anniversary of her birth and um, a great, great saint. Back in uh, 1970, on September 27, 1970, Pope Paul VI declared St. Teresa of Jesus the, a doctor of the church. She was the first woman to receive that title, you know, and um, he described her teaching as an eminent doctrine on the message of prayer, and she is. Uh, you know, I was asking the sisters before the conference if they knew what her title was. Every doctor of the church has a title, and uh, I would imagine hers is related to prayer because she's the great teacher of prayer, you know. And her message is very important today. When I teach our brothers and sisters, our postulants and uh, the men postulants, the women postulants of our Franciscan community back in, the, in the New York, I always use for the postulants, I always use the teaching of St. Teresa in the Interior Castle, which is really a description of the journey of prayer and growth and holiness. And so I, I said, nobody did it better than St. Teresa. And uh, in fact, uh, Pope Pius XII, commemorating the 300th anniversary of her canonization, said that um, whoever reads uh, her works will require no other treatises for living a truly holy life. For in these works, this mistress of piety very clearly points out the safe way for advancing from the beginnings of the Christian life to the summit of holiness. So she sums that all up uh, in a very beautiful way. Let's say a little bit about St. Uh, Teresa, what we can say about her. By the way, we call her St. Teresa of Jesus. That's her official title, as opposed to the little flower who is St. Therese of the child Jesus, okay? Most people will say, well, the big St. Teresa and the little St. Teresa. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, St. Teresa of, of Jesus is her official name, okay? Um, she uh, was a person who was, uh, had a lot of natural talents as well as supernatural gifts, extraordinary spiritual favors from God. Huh? Um, and she had a tremendous personality. She, she was a very likable person, okay? Very attractive. By the way, she was physically very, a very attractive woman, 
and um, some guy <laughs> starting to have a little crush on her, you know, and, uh, and so uh, she went into the cloister, and, and that was it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. It ended as soon as it started. <laughs> okay. Um, so she had a, a rather uh, extraordinary blend of natural and supernatural qualities. As I said, she was known for her common sense, okay? She, uh, she had to because um, she had an extraordinary ability to judge people. You know, she had a great insight into people. And uh, she used that when she selected novices for her community. But she had a lot of common sense. And you know, common sense is very important in the spiritual life. It's very important in our natural life, too, to use our common sense. Okay? Um, it's, it, God wants us to make certain prudent judgments about things. So using common sense is very important. I think today common sense is not so common, uh, you know, as it should be. So it's very important to use your common sense. Hmm? Um, and uh, she also had a keen business sense. She founded 17 monasteries in her lifetime. And uh, in order to do that, they were reformed Carmels. You know, in order to do that, she dealt with all kinds of problems. So she had to have an ability, a business sense. You know, her business was spiritual, but uh, she had to have an ability to deal with these things in a practical way and so on. So she, uh, she was very, very uh, sharp with that. She had a sharp wit, great sense of humor, uh, a lively imagination. Did you ever hear the times when she fell into water? the stream, you know, and she got up, she stood up, and uh, she was soaking wet from head to foot, and Jesus spoke to her and said, Teresa, see how I treat my friends? And she said, yeah, now I see why you got so few of them. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so she, she wasn't afraid to tell you what was on her mind. Huh? Uh, one time somebody gave some uh, food that she liked, and she said, that she wrote a note, she said, thank you, and we'll look forward to getting this again, you know. She, she was a little bit forward, you know, what the Jewish people call chutzpah, okay? She had that quality, okay? Um, so keen sense of humor. And um, when she started the reform of the Carmelite friars, she had two friars, Father Anthony of Jesus and uh, John Yepes, who became St. John of the Cross. Now, St. John of the Cross was very short. So she wrote in a letter to, she's, to someone, she said, I have one and a half priests, to begin the reform. <laughs> so that was, that was part of her humor. She used to say, God, from sour-faced saints, deliver us. We don't need any more sour-faced saints in the Catholic Church. We passed our quota about 200 years ago, all right? We don't need any more sour-faced saints. Joy, I saw this when I walked into Mother Teresa's convent the first time in the Bronx, a sign that said, joy is the surest sign of the Holy Spirit's presence in the soul. Do you know that? Joy is the surest sign of the Holy Spirit's presence in the soul. So no more sour-faced saints, okay? And um, St. Francis was big on that too, you know? Um, remember the time she was at the convent of the Incarnation where she had entered Carmel and she was on the staircase and Jesus appeared to her. And Jesus said to her, who are you? She said, I am Teresa of Jesus. And he said, well, I am Jesus of Teresa. Okay, how much he loved her, huh? 
Um, she was very warm-hearted, great sympathy. She had a, a kindness, a sweetness about her. She was loved by everybody, the, the rich and the poor, the sophisticated and the simple. You know, they all loved her. She had a real tender heart. Um, she had a great insight into human nature. Again, when she selected candidates and um, one of the first requirements she looked for in selecting candidates for community life and religious life was the ability to use their intelligence, good judgment. Again, go back to that common sense. You know, she said that's even more important, she said, than having a, a, you know extraordinary degree of piety. Why? Because she said we can train people in piety, but you can't train people to use their own judgment. Either they use it or they don't. So she had some very winning characteristics, you know, in her own life, all right? So um, St. Teresa, again, she had uh, tremendous influence on um, uh, an awful lot of people, all right? Um, let me go back just a few more little introductory points here. She had a great influence in her time um, on the Counter-Reformation. Remember, it, this was the time when she was born in Spain, at the time Spain was the most powerful nation in the world. Um, she also was born at the time when the Reformation, okay, was beginning, the, count, the Protestant breakaway was occurring in Central Europe. And in one of her books, she writes, what could I, a woman, a cloistered nun, a thousand miles away from this turmoil in the church, what could I do, she said. She said, I know what I can do. She said, Jesus has a lot of enemies, but only a few friends. She said, I can be his good friend. And that's the way St. Teresa lived. That's the way she thought. So she was to have a very powerful influence on the Counter-Reformation, which is the Catholic reform of the church that occurred in reaction to the Protestant uh, breakaway. Okay, um, someone wrote, if St. Ign Ignatius of Loyola was the brain of the Catholic re reaction, Teresa of Jesus was its heart. If Ignatius is the head of a great band, Teresa of Jesus belongs completely to its humanity, okay? Uh, later on, she influenced great saints like St. Saint Francis de Sales, St. Uh, Alphonsus Liguori, and even in the, in the, the last century, a woman named Edith Stein. Edith Stein was a philosopher. She was Jewish, but she never practiced her Jewish faith. And um, uh, she was a disciple of a philosopher, a famous philosopher named Herschel. And one day, this uh, Teresa, Edith Stein went to visit uh, a friend of hers who was a Catholic. And this friend had all of St. Teresa's writings. And Edith Stein picked, them up, picked up one of the books, and she couldn't put it down. She read everything St. Teresa wrote in one day. And when she finished reading it, she said, she said, this is the truth. And uh, Edith Stein became a nun. She became Sister Teresa Benedicta, and she died in the Nazi concentration camp in Auschwitz. So she is a martyr of the church, a virgin martyr. Um, so St. Teresa has had a tremendous influence on a lot of people and continues to do so. What I thought would be important tonight was to go through a little bit of her life, okay? Because we want to know who we're talking about. She didn't always live a very holy life. 
She got herself into some difficulty in terms of uh, not living the life that God called her to faithfully. And, uh, and yet she bounced back from that and had a remarkable, remarkable conversion and affected the church profoundly with the reform of Carmel. Okay, let's talk a little bit about her life. She was born in, uh, in Avila. If you ever go to Spain, Avila is one of the most perfectly walled cities preserved. You know, the great big wall around the whole city. And, um, and uh, so she was born there. It's, a, it's in the area of Castile in Spain, all right? And um, uh, she was born on March 28, 1515. So that's why we're celebrating the 500th anniversary year of her birthday, right? Um, she was born, as I mentioned, at a time when Spain was the greatest uh, country in the world. Her father was a man named Don Alonso Sanchez de Tepeda. He was a very religious man. He had been married once. His wife died. He had two children by that first wife. He married another woman named Dona Beatrice de Ahumanda, uh, who was only 15 years old. She bore 10 children, okay? Among them was Teresa, okay? So Teresa, as a child, her mother died when, she, when the mother was only 33 years old. So as a child, uh, Teresa's mother passed away. What was her early childhood like? Well, she had some interesting religious experiences, okay? Um, you know, things that can happen in our early life that we experience come back to us later on and affect us. You know, they always say Catholics have a memory. And I don't know how many of you remember a man, he was a famous uh, singer, Dion. They were Dion, and he had a group called the Belmonts. I know them, I mean, I knew where they were from because I grew up in the Bronx, and Belmont Avenue was in the Bronx. And uh, he, he went to Mount Carmel Church there in Fordham, Fordham area in the Bronx. And uh, later on, he drifted away from the church. He became kind of evangelical for about 20 years. And he went back to the Bronx and he walked back into that church. And he said it all came back to him. The smell, the sight. And you know, it's an old saying that Catholics have a memory. And so things that happen to us sometimes very early in our life can come back and affect us later on. It sort of revives. And that's what happened and some of the things in St. Teresa's life. She, she liked the lives of the saints. When she was about seven years old, she liked to hear the stories of the lives of the saints. Um, you know, we're all hero worshipers, and that's what the saints are for us. People that we, men and women, who are just like we are, the same flesh and blood as you and I, but uh, someone once described the saint as the saints with the, the sinners who kept trying. So if you keep trying, you'll become a saint. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so St. Ter Ter uh, Teresa, as a little child, had a great love of the saints. She used to read the lives of the saints. Uh, particularly, she liked the stories about the, um, the saints who were in the, the desert. You know, the desert, they, uh, they used to call them the, the hermits, the Abbas and the Amas. I always say they were the uh, precursors of the mamas and the papas, huh? you know, that, uh, so yeah. So you had the Abbas from where you, that's where you get the word abbot from. Those uh, men who were, you know, very holy, a lot of them with great, great supernatural wisdom. So the Abbas and the women were the Amas. Huh? 
And uh, so she liked to hear those stories about them. In fact, she would build little, like out of stones in her backyard, like little uh, caves where the, just like the, the, the hermits lived in those caves. Later on, the martyrs, she became uh, very interested in the martyrs because it seemed to her that they got to heaven very, very easily. You know, just a little suffering they put up with, and then they got to heaven. Well, she had an incident that happened. Um, uh, she, she heard a sermon by a priest and who said, now she was seven years old. She had a little brother, Rodrigo, who was four. And they were at the Mass. And they heard the sermon where the priest said, in order to see God, you have to, you have to die in order to see God. So when they came out of Mass, they connived this little plot. They were going to run away to go to where the Moors were in Spain, and hopefully that the Moors would put them to death, you know, so that they could die and get to heaven and see God. So she and her little brother got out of the walled city, and they got about a mile out of the city when finally their uncle found them. Huh? He, he saw them there, and he took them back to her, their mother and fa father, and uh, the mother was all upset, you know, why did, why did she you know, do that? And her little brother blamed it all on, on her, you know, and Teresa. So, but, but, you know, she never forgot that. You know, I want to see God. That was one of the things she had a great wish for. I want to see God. Okay? And uh, so that was something instilled in her in her childhood. Um, <clears throat> Another thing that she had a... Um, a picture in uh, the wall in her, her, her home of the Samaritan woman at the well. And remember, that was the woman who actually was in her room. Um, that was the woman who Jesus said to her, you remember, you know, uh, give me a drink. And, um, and then he talked to her about that living water, remember? And you, you drink that living water, you won't have to thirst again. That woman, boy, that sounded terrific because here she was getting up around 6 o'clock in the morning you know, I mean, 12 o'clock at noon, she, because uh, the women normally got up at 6, but she didn't like to be at the well with the other women because she was living, if you know that story, she was living a pretty wild life, and she was probably the talk at the well of a, a lot of her escapades going on. And, um, but remember when Jesus started to talk to her about this living water, and he tells her, if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. And... Uh, the woman said to her, Lord, give me this water, you know, that I may not thirst. And that made a deep impression on Teresa. Lord, give me this water that I may not thirst, okay? So her religious experiences in her childhood um, kind of stayed with her. And um, she had this great desire for God. However, difficulties came along as she grew up um, and... Um, she knew that in order to be faithful to God, she had to despise the world, you know, and strive to, for the, the joys of heaven. But, you know, it seemed to her that she was always falling back into doing wrong things, okay? When she looked back at her life later on, when she wrote her life, you know, she mentioned a lot of the wrong things that she was doing, okay? Um, she had um, an, a very vivacious personality, okay? very lively, very charming, you know, and um, she put her whole self into everything she did. And sometimes that would get her into trouble. She was mischievous, 
you know, and so on. Very strong-willed, very stubborn. You'll notice that's a quality among the saints, to be stubborn, okay? Now, you know, people say, well, you've got a one-track mind. That's not bad if you're on the right track. If you're on the wrong track, then it's very bad, okay? Because you don't want to get on the right track. Hmm? But if you have a one-track mind or you have a stubbornness, you can grow very far in holiness. The little flower, remember her mother died when she was four and a half years old. But there's an incident when her mother punished her and sent her, put her in the basement, told her to stay there until she would, you know, she would say she was sorry. She didn't. She stayed there all day. And uh, her mother said she's very, very stubborn. Uh, I remember an incident that happened when I was a novice. Uh, my novitiate, whenever you left the novitiate floor, you had to go to the novice master and get a blessing. And when you came back, the same thing. So after lunch, my novice master used to take a little siesta, okay? And we'd have to go knock on the door, and he'd be, you'd hear a little, uh, uh, you know, a little moan or groan, you know? And, and one day, we knocked on the door, and all of a sudden, he comes walking out of the room. We were shocked, you know? Usually, he was taking his little siesta. And... Um, we had a statue with a little flower like that down at the end of the, the hallway, but a lot more flowers, a lot more roses. And he said to us, he said, you know, you see that statue? Everybody looks at St. Therese and they think she became a saint because she had all those roses. He said she didn't become a saint because she had all the roses. She became a saint because she had a crucifix in the middle of the rosary, roses. And then he said she was very stubborn. She had an iron will. And that's what made her such a great saint. She had that will. You know, if you turn your will in the right way, you can grow far in holiness. If you're wimpy, you won't, you'll be a wimpy saint, you know. <laughs> Wishy-washy, uh, you know, fits and starts and everything else. But you won't get too far. You've got to have determination. You've got to make your mind up. And that's what Teresa had. She had a strong will, huh? Um, you know, she, she wanted to, she, she lamented losing some of her innocence, not in sexually or anything like that, but um, she felt bad that her mother, we used to read these tales of chivalry, which was a, a lot of worldly romanticism and everything else, and uh, she didn't think that was good for children to read that, okay? She, tells, she said that um, she wanted to make sure she didn't become vain and flirtatious because um, she could get a very bad reputation, okay? When her mother died, her mother died when she was 14, okay? And um, this distressed her greatly. She began to change, okay? Her father was quite concerned that she was going to become very worldly and maybe start getting involved with, with the boys and so on. So he sent her to a boarding school, a convent of Augustinian nuns, okay? And uh, she, she stayed there. It was in Avila, and there were many other young women there from social rank and everything else. Um, it was her first exposure to religious life. It was, it was good. She was there for about a year and a half, and she became very sick. Her father took her home to convalesce, and when she returned home, that's when she began to consider religious life, all right? when she returned home. And uh, what influenced her to religious life? Well, she, she read some good religious books. She read a, a book on the letters of St. Jerome. 
and which helped her a lot. And she also had a good example of a friend who had entered religious life. So she made the decision to enter Carmel, right? And she was, uh, she was about 20 years old. She told her father. Her father said, no way. When I die, then you can go to Carmel. Well, what she did is she got one of her brothers to help her, and she snuck off to Carmel, and uh, she stayed there, okay? Um, she was about 20 years old when she entered Carmel. Then she had a sickness shortly after that. Um, we're not sure exactly the nature of the sickness, but um, it was very mysterious. It was thought today that she was suffering from kind, some kind of a malignant malaria. And um, uh, her father got her removed out of the convent. Okay? Um, a very close friend who was a nun also stayed with her, and uh, she, she went through all, to all kinds of physicians, but they couldn't. They couldn't figure out what she was suffering from, okay? She didn't get any rest day or night. The doctors gave up on her. Her condition got worse and worse. The illness brought her to the very threshold of death and um, left her with a paralysis that would take three years to recover from, okay? Now, the illness got so bad that at one point they actually thought she died. They didn't have the machines back then to pick up faint heartbeat or brain waves or anything like that, okay? So they thought she died, and they actually laid her out in the chapel. It was the father who said, no, my daughter's not dead, you know? And she revived, okay? She attributed her cure to St. Joseph, and that's why she always had that special love. She said, I never prayed to St. Joseph without getting an answer to my prayers, okay? We'll tell you a little story sometime during the retreat on uh, the influence of St. Joseph, okay? Now, St. Teresa began to pray, all right? She, as a, as a Carmelite, um, she, um, she prayed, you know, uh, through the, to experience, actually she had prayed at one point to experience sickness in order to learn patience. At first, she bore the patience, the suffering with joy, but after a while, uh, you know, she felt it was better to serve God with good health. And um, so she prayed to God to take her illness away. And she felt later on that was a mistake, she said. We should, quote, resign ourselves absolutely to the disposition of our Lord, who knows best what is for our good. Okay. You know, when it comes to, you know, I don't want to leave you with the impression that we're not allowed to pray to God to take things away from us that are sufferings. Even Jesus himself prayed in the garden and he said, Father, all things are possible to you. You know, take this cup of suffering from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. If we add that to a prayer, you know, um, we can always still remain disposed to what God wants us to do. Okay? It is very important to do things according to God's will for you. Because nothing happens to you or me that God either doesn't want it to happen or he doesn't permit it to happen. When, when bad things happen, God doesn't necessarily want those, but he will permit them. Sickness, for example. Sickness comes to somebody, well, you, you know, God doesn't want people just to be sick, but he may permit it to teach them to be more trusting in him, to pray more, you know. There's all kinds of reasons why a person may suffer. 
in uh, one of my books um, entitled Walk Humbly with Your God, I talk about the different, the different reasons why God lets us suffer. Sometimes it's a purification. Sometimes it's um, for somebody else's conversion. You know, um, there's a lot of different reasons why we may uh, suffer. But I think if, as long as we are disposed to God's will, but she was praying just to take it away, not according to God's will. And she saw that later on as something we shouldn't do. We should pray according to God's will. She also read St. Gregory's great book on Moralia, which was, um, uh, gave a lot of his teachings and also taught about Job. Now talk about somebody who suffered, huh? Remember the story of Job. God, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He said, if we can accept good things from the hand of God, why should we not accept that which is difficult and evil? She read another little book. It was given to her by a cousin of hers, um, by a Franciscan named uh, Father Francis de Suna, called The Third Spiritual Alphabet. And this is what introduced her to mental prayer, okay? And this was all happening in those first years in Carmel, okay? Remember I told you she was about 20 years old, and um, she regained her health after about three years, and... Uh, so she, she began to be affected, you know, with the desire to pray. They believe that by the age of 24, she was already into the fourth mansion, which is pretty far advanced, okay, which we'll talk about as we go through the mansions, okay? But this is where her problems begin, all right, real problems, okay? And that is she begins to compromise her life. She falls into a kind of attitude of neglect, okay? Um, see, what happened was uh, she describes her own spiritual life as tumultuous, okay? In her autobiography, she has, she has little that is specific to tell us about the next 15 years. However, they must have been very, um, uh, very difficult, okay? When she looked back at them, she characterized them as a time of lukewarmness, Okay? compromise of her life. Remember, in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to the churches. The Spirit speaks to the churches. And Jesus said, remember, to one of the churches that it was lukewarm. He said, I would rather you be hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, remember, he said, I'm ready to spew you out of my mouth. Hmm? Lukewarmness, you know, is certainly a kind of a danger for uh, religious people, people who want to grow in holiness, okay? And we're fighting, sometimes it comes from our own, you know, worldliness, comes from sometimes from our own laziness and so on. And sometimes this is why when we go through those periods of suffering that St. John of the Cross would call dark nights, okay, God allows them so that we have to use our will to, you know, with his grace to push ourselves so that we don't fall into an attitude of laziness or indifference. See, we've got to overcome the pull of lukewarmness. But that's what happens to St. Therese, uh, Teresa, rather. She gets into this lukewarmness. She begins to compromise. Two main problems. She was, there were distractions, you know, and worldliness. And secondly, she began to neglect prayer, okay? And this is what accounted for that, that worldliness. Now, what were these problems, okay? They had a custom at the time in the convent there. Uh, quite common, 
that visitors of all kinds could freely come and, and mingle with the, the nuns in the parlor, okay? They would come, the spe- it was a speaking room. Now, remember I told you, Therese, she was very attractive, she was very witty, and so on, and she was the one most of the people would ask to come and talk to. So she was spent an awful lot of time in the parlor, which meant she was neglecting her prayer life as a cloistered nun. She spent so much time conversing in the parlor that um, she became distracted. She was preoccupied. She got attached to people, you know, and she began to neglect prayer, okay? And remember I told you, she was already advanced to the, about the fourth mansion, which is quite far. Huh? Um, so it was not a small fault to be attached for someone who had reached such a high degree of prayer, all right? She needed fidelity. She needed, you know, to grace. She needed to be detached from people, from, uh, you know, a worldly spirit, okay? Uh, She needed more faithfulness to her duties. Um, But, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, she was neglecting all of this, okay? Um, So it caused this worldliness. She said she was serving, trying to serve two masters. And doesn't that happen in our own lives, you know? We want to grow in holiness. But are we willing to give up a master that is not Christ to serve Christ? How willing are we, you know, if we allow ourselves to be pulled in two directions, you know, didn't Jesus say, no man can serve two masters, you can't serve God in the world. At the same time, he said, you'll, you'll become attentive to one and neglect the other. And that's what happened to St. Teresa. So here's this great saint, this remarkable woman of holiness, but she hit the, the pits right here. This is for, for someone who was called to such a holy life. She had neglected so many, many graces. This is what she writes. I was living an extremely burdensome life because in prayer I understood more clearly my faults. On the other hand, God was calling me. On one hand, God was calling me. On the other hand, I was following the world. So here she was, you know, caught between the world and and her God. She began to neglect that prayer, she said, and... Um, because of these distractions and, you know, um, they be, she found prayer very, very tedious, very burdensome. And she said, I don't know what heavy penance could have come to mind that frequently I would not have gladly undertaken rather than recollect myself in the practice of prayer. So if you've had a bad day with dryness in your prayer, just think of that. Huh? She said, I'd rather suffer anything else and put up with this dryness in prayer. And here's this remarkable teacher of prayer. Um, The efforts that she made, you know, this this struggle went on until she was 39 years old. So from the age of 24 to 39, 15 years, maybe a little bit longer, okay? She made at one point a decision to even abandon prayer. She said, I thought that would be the more humble thing to do because I was offending God. So I would thought of giving up prayer. Thank God she changed her mind right away. She said, that was the worst decision of my life. Never give up praying. Never. No matter how far you think you've drifted off, never stop praying because prayer becomes your lifeline back to God. 
Um, she summed up her neglected prayer this way. I wish I, I, I had permission to say how often at this time I failed in my duty to God because I was not leaning on the strong pillar of prayer. I passed nearly 20 years on this stormy sea, falling and rising, but rising to no good purpose, for seeing that I went and fell again. Okay. All of a sudden now, a conversion. Um, she was about 40 years old now, and uh, her father died. And his confessor, who was a Dominican friar, came, and he he heard the kind of life she was living. And he pointed out to her how dangerous her state of soul was. At his insistence, she returned to mental prayer and never again abandoned it. So she was turning back to prayer. To become faithful, we must pray. Okay. However, uh, she didn't have the courage yet to renounce entirely the time she spent in the parlor and to follow God perfectly. It wasn't all at once a complete conversion, but she at least was on the way, you know, gaining back that, the importance of prayer. God gave her help by means of two great penitents, St. Mary Magdalene and St. Augustine. She saw a picture, or as some say a statue, of our Lord's suffering and St. Mary Magdalene weeping over his sufferings. You know, when you see her at the foot of the cross, embracing the feet of Christ. That's the, that's the gesture of the penitent, to be at the feet of Christ like that. And so Teresa saw that, and she was so moved by that, you know, um, that she begged Jesus to strengthen her. She, she uh, started to feel the confidence to trust him completely. Okay, so seeing Mary Magdalene at the feet of Jesus. Here's the woman the scripture says seven devils were driven out of her. If you have seven devils, you have a fullness of evil. Hmm? And Jesus drove them out of Mary Magdalene. And she became the great lover of Jesus, right? You know, wasn't, she had that love that we described, you know, when love is blind. Huh? She had that blind love, didn't she? You know, look at what happened on Easter Sunday. You know, she hadn't been able to anoint the body of Jesus. They had to bury him right away because of the Sabbath, the Passover. She goes very early in the morning, and she's with a group of women, and they're saying, well, who's going who's gonna to roll the stone away? Did that stop her? No, she just kept going, you know. Um, when she sees Jesus later on, she thought it was the, the gardener. Remember, the, the rumor was going around that uh, this guy had a garden next to the tomb where Jesus was buried, and he was afraid the crowds of people who were going to come out there and they're going to be stepping all over his tomatoes and eggplants and whatever else he had growing there. Huh? So he took the body away. That was the rumor. And so when Mary Magdalene saw Jesus, she didn't recognize him until he called her by name. Remember Jesus said in the gospel, you know, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. I call them by name. And so... When Jesus said her name, Mary, then she recognized him, okay? Until that point, her love was blind. I used to live with an old friar who used to say, love is blind and marriage is the eye opener, huh? <laughs> That's another form of, uh, right? Okay. Um, so she, fell, she felt the help of St. Mary Magdalene. 
It seems to me that I said to Jesus that I would not rise up until he granted my petition. I do certainly believe that this was of great benefit to me because I have grown ever since. So, the penitent. But she was also helped, okay, by the example of um, St. Augustine, okay? By the way, after that prayer to St. Mary Magdalene, she was no longer torn between God and the world. She resigned herself to serving God faithfully. And that's important in conversion. The more we resign ourselves to love God, that he is numero uno, number one, he is the center, then our conversion can become complete, okay? As a result, she recovered the joy, and that's an important thing. Remember I told you before, joy is the surest sign of the Holy Spirit's presence in the soul. Okay, got a little bit more to do and finish her life here tonight so we can get into the mansions tomorrow. St. Augustine. She, start, she started reading his book, The Confessions. And when she read it, she saw how St. Augustine heard the voice of Jesus calling him. There's one part, maybe you've heard those words. He said, um, I, was bl- I was deaf, and you shouted, and you broke through my deafness. Then he said, I was blind, and you shone your light, and you broke through my blindness. He said, then you breathed on me. And I inhaled, and I took in this fragrance, and I longed for you. He said, then I tasted, and I hungered for more. He said, and finally, you touched me, and I burned for your peace. Those are the five senses I heard. I was deaf. You broke through my deafness. See, just as we have five senses physically, we have five spiritual senses. Hearing, seeing. Not visions. I don't mean that. You know, when somebody says, do you understand it? Yeah, I see what you mean. Hmm? In that sense, we begin to grasp. You know, very important because a lot of times people explain things to us. and I don't see. I don't understand what you mean. Finally, when the Holy Spirit helps us to grasp these things, I see. I see what you mean. See, so hearing comes first. You know, even physically of the senses, They always say hearing is the first sense that operates in a child. For example, they've done studies with unborn children. They say the voice that the unborn child recognizes most is the voice of the mother because the mother is always with the child and the child's always with the mother. So that's the voice the child is going to hear the most. So we begin to hear, and you'll see that becomes very important in the mansions Because St. Teresa says, if you're in the first mansion, which means just off a a big conversion maybe, he said, you're like a deaf mute. Deaf because you can't hear God speaking to you yet. And you're mute, you don't know how to talk to him. And that's true. A lot of people who've had the beginning of their conversion, they can't hear God. They They don't hear him talking. But you'll see, she explains all of this as very important, okay? So she was experiencing it herself. So Augustine said, you know, first I heard, then I saw, I understood. Then I began to experience the fragrance of God. Then I tasted, taste and see that the Lord is sweet. And finally, I burned for your peace. Those are the five senses, all right? And so she, she read this in Augustine, and she felt that God was speaking to her deep within her heart. 
Okay, so she began to relate to that hearing. She could hear the voice of God within her. St. Teresa felt a new strength. She experienced a liberate, the liberating power of Jesus. Her spiritual life was renewed now by these experiences. Okay, okay. it grows. Once she gave up her distractions, her worldliness, she rapidly grew in the spiritual life. She was favored with the, the uh, prayer of quiet, which is in the fourth mansion. And um, she calls this and other forms of prayer. Once you hit the fourth mansion, you're into supernatural prayer. Okay? It's not ordinary. The first three mansions are filled with ordinary prayer. We'll talk about that, especially tomorrow morning. We'll deal with the first couple of mansions. And we'll talk about ordinary prayer. Okay? But once you pass into that fourth mansion, you begin to experience what she would call supernatural prayer. In other words, it's not a natural development. It's the Holy Spirit working in you. That begins in the fourth man. That's why when she began to explain that, she prayed to the Holy Spirit, give me the words to explain it for people who may have never experienced it. Okay? But it's very important to know about it. Okay? Um, let me just continue then. So she had the prayer of uh, quiet, which is the fourth mansion. The fifth mansion, the prayer of union, okay? Um, and she said sometimes it continued for a long time and brought great joy and love. If you hit the fifth mansion, you are very, very far in the spiritual life, okay? Because it brings with, with it a great, great love and, and joy and peace of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that can help you, you know, to, to be growing is trying faithfully every day, as much as you can, to try to do the will of God in the events that happen to you in your daily life. The duties that you have to do, whether you're a family person, you know, in the, in the, maybe in a family, maybe at work, um, keeping the commandments, obviously, um, and so on, practicing the Christian virtues, as you do them. And then even the things that happen to you in your life. So, for example, you know, maybe some disappointment happens. I thought somebody was going to call me or, you know, and they didn't call, so I was disappointed. Well, I accept that disappointment. You know, when you start seeing the hand of God in all the events of your day, you are disposing yourself for a greater advance in prayer. Okay? You have to have, if you've ever read the book, by Father De Cassad, abandonment to the will to the uh, divine providence. Hmm? He says, in order to see the hand of God working in you, and he said, every moment of the day, he called it the sacrament of the present moment. He said, every moment of your day, God is communicating with you, and if you begin to see the hand of God working in everything that happens to you, in events, the more you see that the more faith you will need to see that. And the more your faith grows, the more you'll see God. God becomes very real, you know. Um, I, I was talking to a man on a plane yesterday coming here. We had an interesting conversation. He was a nice man. He was a Jewish man. And, you know, but I could see how, you know, like, for example, I was trying to tell him about Jesus. And, well, how do you know he existed? And so, but you experience something of Jesus, it's not just, you know, I know from theology, but it's a faith experience 
And you should know Jesus as a faith experience. I know him. I've talked to him. I've been with him. You know, he's been with me. And that's, that's sensing a reality. And it's very important to have that kind of experience. Experiential knowledge of God. That's what Pope Francis keeps talking about when he said, it's not enough to tell people about our theology. We've got to introduce them to Jesus. Because if you only learn theology but you don't know Jesus, well, it's going to be, all that, all that theology is going to be dry, lifeless. But if you know Jesus, it all comes alive. Hmm? Once I know him, you know, I know the reason why I believe. I know why I'm here. Uh, I saw a little sign. Oh, is Sister Luisita, Mother Luisita? You were made for more than this, huh? You know, um, and we begin to see the more. The more Jesus becomes real to us. And it's very, very important. So St. Teresa was experiencing these things, okay? She even began to get into mystical experiences like raptures, which would be like ecstasies, visions, locutions. She did have a terrifying vision of hell. I think it was earlier on in her, her conversion. She saw this shaft filled with spiders and snakes and scorpions, all, all the things she hated, okay? And she sensed that it was a place in hell. And then, she, because she was still struggling with the, her sins there, she sensed that that was her place in hell. Well, that helped to motivate her, you know? Uh, she got a real thrust from that. She certainly didn't want to end up there. Huh? Um, <clears throat> she was determined to live the Carmelite rule with greater perfection, even to reform. Um, she was convinced that the, the mystical experiences that she had were from God. However, um, she became perplexed because people were warning her. You know, that when you have visions, maybe you're deluding yourself, maybe it's the devil, maybe it's your own imagination. So she really got all upset, okay? She consulted many persons, spiritual directors and priests. Unfortunately, um, though she, she bound the, these people to secrecy, they began to talk about these experiences, so it made it very difficult for Teresa, okay? She went to four different priests. One priest told her that the visions were from the devil. The second priest told her, just try to forget about it for about a month. Third one said, you know, pray for 30 days and see what happens. And finally, uh, great Franciscan saint, St. Peter of Alcantara, met her. And he said to her, your visions are real. And so that consoled her. And he supported her in her work of beginning the reform, the discalced Carmelites, you know, that reform, all right? Uh, she wanted to observe the primitive rule, and she got permission to, um, to open a convent, St. Joseph's Convent, in Avila. And that was the first of the Reform Carmels. You know, uh, she did that in 1562. By the way, she experienced, you know, um, what was called the transverberation of the heart. You see that picture there? You see that's an angel. Okay, I don't know if you can see it very clear, clear, clearly. Maybe later on, come up to the altar there. And you see that angel is holding like a javelin. Okay, see how Teresa's going like this? Hmm? Kind of. And he's ready to pierce her heart. 
jabber, all right? That's called the transverberation of the heart. Now, if you experience that naturally, it, it splits the heart, the two chambers of the heart. If that happened to you naturally, you would be dead, okay? If it happens spiritually, supernaturally, God will sustain you. Padre Pio experienced that. About a month before he got the stigmata, he said, I saw an angel with a flaming javelin, and he threw it at me, okay? And it pierced into my, into my heart and split the chambers of the heart. He said it caused him tremendous pain, okay? Probably even more than, than he spoke about the, even the, the, the stigmata itself. Huh? Um, but St. Teresa experienced that. That's why that, you see that, the vision of an angel, or some say it was Christ himself, Okay, um, but she went on to found that convent there, St. Joseph's, and um, she, she would, altogether she founded 17 Carmels, okay? Um, she, wrote her, she wrote a book called The Book of Foundations, okay? It was a biography about the trials she went through in founding all these uh, places. I was gonna go into the writings, but I'll hold that off till tomorrow because I'm going to start with it anyway. But um, her three main books were her book on, called The Life, The Way of Perfection, and The Interior Castle. And that's the one we'll focus on. But let me just conclude this. St. Teresa had, um, as I mentioned before, persuaded St. John of the Cross and Father Gratian, who was her confessor and friend, to begin the reform of the Carmelite friars. Okay. She died in a place called Alba de Tormes on October the 4th, 1582. Later on, Pope Gregory the 13th reformed the calendar and her feast day ended up on October 15th. That's when we celebrated. She was 67 years old. 26 years she had spent at the Incarnation Convent. That's when she first came in. She spent 20 more years as the foundress of the discalced Carmelite reform. Okay. When the bells tolled at her death, the peasants said, the saint has gone to heaven. Okay. So we want to go to bed. All right. And, but so we'll, we'll pick up on that tomorrow, but I hope that, I'm sorry, it can be a little bit boring to go through a life like that, but it's very important to know, you know, what she experienced. So it wasn't all an easy, smooth road. She had her struggles and, uh, she remained very faithful to God. And like I told you, she said, what could I, a woman, cloistered nun, thousand miles away from all this turmoil in the church, what could I do? I could be Jesus' good friend. And that's exactly what she was. And that's why she inspired so many, many people. As some historian said, she did more for the Catholic Reformation than even St. Ignatius Loyola did because she reformed the heart of the church. Okay. Uh, even Bishop Sheen used to say that the Carmel, Carmelite reform is essential, you know, the, the prayer life of the Carmelites, essential to the life of the church. So a uh, very, very powerful, powerful thing. May Jesus and his Holy Mother and St. Teresa bless you. Amen.